So I want to um, welcome you all in completing our first day, full day of sitting. In Pali, sometimes we use the expression sadhu, 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 which means well done, well done, well done. Well done indeed. Because, um, you know, it's not so easy to do intensive meditation practice. And even for those of us that have gone on many retreats, as Mary Grace said, these first few days, couple days, can be like being in the swamp. Things have been stripped away in a sense of we're not talking with one another, looking at one another, reading, writing, arithmetic. These things stripped away, sometimes it feels like we sit inside a hall of mirrors staring at me, myself, and I. Ay, ay, ay. The 10,000 joys, 10,000 sorrows. And yes, it can be swamp-like. It's buggy, muggy, hot, cold, restless, tired, pain, itches, wants, don't wants. So if you're experiencing any of those, it's normal. May you know that. Bhante Gunaratana Buddhist monk, he says, somewhere in this process of meditation, you'll come face to face with the sudden realization that your mind is completely crazy. That your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way. Perhaps you haven't noticed. And Bhante Gonaratana goes on to say that when you take on meditation practice, I love the word he uses, it says it's like taking on a lot of gumption. I haven't used the word gumption too much, but I like that word, gumption. It takes a type of a quality of, you know, this willingness to sit and to be with what's here. It takes a certain type of gumption. Because, you know, for many of us, um, we might really consider, really would rather be doing something else. After all, you know, it is Saturday night. I could be at home watching a movie, eating popcorn. What am I doing here? Hafiz, he speaks about, um, please don't be fooled. Hafiz is a Persian poet, and he says that for... There's not many teachers in the world that can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone for three days in your closet. That would do. (laughs) And that means not leaving. You better get a friend to help you with some sandwiches and a chamber pot. No reading or writing in there either. That'd be cheating. This sitting alone, though, is not recommended if you're normally sedated. Dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried here. I can't hear you. Could you read that? Your voice dropped down. Huh. So don't let Hafiz fool you. A ruby is buried here. 
Don't let Hafiz fool you. There's a ruby buried here. So we know that um, in these first days uh, that we can be experiencing challenges of wanting and not wanting and restlessness and sleepiness and doubt and so forth. And so we really invite the sense of cultivating our patience. We'll speak more about how to work with these challenges. Mary Grace will tomorrow night. And also, no doubt, I think many of us have been dealing with wandering mind. Anybody's mind been wandering? (laughs) Yeah. I've thought a lot about the wandering mind while I've been wandering away. And I actually can recognize that there's three potential benefits to working with the wandering mind. One is... Every time that we notice that our mind wanders and we acknowledge wherever it is that we went and we come back, it's that very exercise, that very practice that helps to build our concentration. Just like if you go to a gym and you're working with the weights and through repetition that builds muscle mass in the same way, the mind goes off, we bring it back. The mind goes off, we bring it back. Gradually in time, perhaps our concentration will begin to grow it will begin to sustain itself on the object that we're bringing attention to, such as the breath. There's other objects, too, we can work with. But this coming back again and again builds our concentration. And when you consider wisely, the moment that you realize that you're not present, you are. That's a very simple equation. The moment you realize that you've been wandering, that you're not present, you are. And there's absolutely no reason to, to try to berate yourself. What's wonderful is, is that you're back again. And there's nothing that you can do about it anyways and where you've been because that's already gone by. The point is you're back. Let this practice grow in this moment. Can we begin to train with kindness? I loved that Mary Grace mentioned earlier about this notion of befriending holding our practice in a befriending quality. There's actually even a, a Christian mystic named St. Francis de Sales and was a meditator and said, if your mind wanders, bring it back quite gently. And if you did nothing for the whole of your hour, but bring it back every time it went off. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> he ends by saying, your hour would still be well employed. Your hour would still be well employed, even if it went off every other moment and you brought it back, your hour would still be well employed. This is a very beautiful way of holding our practice, this practice of bringing it back again and again. Another very important aspect of working with the wandering mind is that now that you're present again, you've got a chance to see where it is that it went off to, and it might be just some important information that you might actually need to deal with in your life. And the third part is that when we become aware of where we've wandered off, and then we come back into presence, and we see that perhaps our jaws clenched, our bellies in knots, we're having all this musculoskeletal tension, we begin to see this connection between our thoughts and emotions and the current state of our body. 
So I just wanted to offer these supports in working with the practice, because we are like farmers, we're cultivating the soil of awareness. So I just wanted to name these things for now, but I think the gist of what I want to speak about tonight is about the body, about the mystery. There's a very um, kind of a mysterious reading by Rod McClaver. He says, why do we exist? Fifty trillion cells make up the human body, and each of these cells in turn consists of atoms, countless millions or billions of them, depending on the function of a specific cell. And the atoms, they consist mostly of empty space, protons and neutrons surrounded by electrons. Empty space, just as the universe is mostly empty space. The human body, this entity of mostly empty space, is spaced, held together, space unified, even if only for a little while, by a life force. These atoms existed before the human body, and they'll exist after this life is gone. But in the meantime, in this short interval, these atoms are held together by this indescribable, unknowable force. Very mysterious when you consider, really, but what is this life? Who are we? The Buddha, he speaks about the importance of the body. This retreat is a body retreat. Just as mentioning yesterday, um, just very briefly about this point in my life where I finally realized that if I wanted to know anything about myself, I needed to begin to turn to look inwards inside my own body and mind. I love what the Buddha says. This is from uh, the Samyutta Nikaya, one of uh, the suttas. He says that within this fathom-long body, with its thoughts and emotions, is the world, and its origin, and its cessation, and the path leading to nibbana, to peace and freedom. Another poet, Sarah, writes that within my body are all the sacred places of the world. And the most profound pilgrimage I can ever make is within my own body. Our body is our vehicle of which we live our lives. Though at times we may not be that present to our bodies. It's a very funny line in The Dubliners by James Joyce. He speaks about a character in his book named Mr. Duffy, and it was said of him, quote-unquote, that Mr. Duffy happened to live a short distance away from his body. And I think maybe we can relate to Mr. Duffy at times. We can feel like we're living a short distance, but actually we do have a body. And it's actually very interesting to say that Siddhartha Gautama, who later became the fully awakened Buddha, that at the age of 29, it was through this realization of the body of death, 
older age, disease, that this was a profound moment in his life that catapulted him into a sense of urgency. Actually, in Pali, the word is called samweka, where you have the realization that grips you into your molecules, that you and no one else can escape from death and aging and illness, and it catapults you into a sense of spiritual urgency. What is this life? And that gateway into that whole sojourn where the Buddha then, the Siddhartha Gautama, begins this epic journey to awaken, it began with this realization of the body in its impermanence. There's these very powerful remembrances that we sometimes use as practice, and it goes, I am of the nature to grow old, and I cannot escape from growing old. I am of the nature to have ill health, and I cannot escape from having ill health. I am of the nature to die, and I cannot escape death. All that is dear to me and everyone I love are of the nature of change. I cannot escape being separated from them. These are very powerful reflections. These are the reflections that Siddhartha Gautama awakened to in his 29th year that set him on this journey to understand what is this life. Jane Kenyon, she writes in her poem, Otherwise, that I got out of bed on two strong legs. It might have been otherwise. I ate cereal and sweet milk and a ripe, flawless peach. It might have been otherwise. I took the dog uphill to the birchwood, and all morning I did the work that I loved, and at noon I lied down with my mate. It might have been otherwise. And we ate dinner together at a table with silver candlesticks. It might have been otherwise. I slept in a bed in a room with paintings on the walls, and I planned another day, just like this day. But one day, I know, it will be otherwise. A powerful poem. One day, I know, it will be otherwise. It's really hard to take that in. So Hindu proverb that says everyone thinks everyone else is going to die, but not me. And yet in my own life, I've uh, come close to death. And I trust out in here, some of you have as well. It's a very different view when you're lying in a hospital bed rather than visiting someone that's in a hospital bed. Some years ago, I um, actually I was in Burma, and I was wearing sandals, and I somehow got a little nick, a little cut, a little abrasion on the top of my left foot. It was a little nothing thing. And then, actually, I was left. I was flying back to the United States, and there was a person sitting in front of me in the airplane that was really sick, sneezing and coughing and hacking and, oh, really sick. And um, I got back home and um, my foot began to hurt. 
begin to really hurt. And it was coming on very quickly, this pain. And um, I was trying to go to bed this one night, you know, recently after returning, and I couldn't even fall asleep. It was so painful, my left foot, where that little cut was, a little abrasion. I couldn't sleep, and so I went downstairs to the um, living room where we lived and got out a, some Epsom salt and warm water and soaking my foot, about maybe 3.30 in the morning, see if that would help alleviate some of the pain. And then I got up, and then I had to go to the toilet. And I started walking to the toilet, and then all of a sudden I heard this very loud sound. I go, this is interesting. What's going on here? And I opened up my eyes to look, and my body was on the floor. And I realized that the sound I had heard was the sound of, that I had passed out, and my body had hit the floor. Very uncanny. So I called up one of my very close friends, who's a physician, about four in the morning. <laughs> he said, meet me in the emergency room. So I went in the emergency room and looked at it. Well, it looks like you have an acute dermatitis, a skin infection. Here's some antibiotics. Here's some pain medicine. Let me know how it is in, in the morning, later. So I was supposed to work the next day. What am I going to do? But, ooh, it was really hurting, so I... Good thing I canceled work and um, was eventually able to go to sleep for a little bit. But when I looked at my foot when I got up, it was not looking good. It was getting more inflamed and went back to the doctor. And Dr. Lucas said, I think we need to check you into the hospital. I was like, well, all right, we'll go check it out. My wife's a nurse and maybe we'll just order some IV antibiotics and then I'll be on my way home. And we've gone through test after test and this and that and... The day was, hours were going by. It was just taking a long time for all this. And I was hungry, didn't eat. And my wife went and got some food. And we came back and ate. And meanwhile, they, they assigned me to go into a hospital room. And, and then, about an hour and a half after I ate, the, a team of doctors came in. And the lead doctor, the first question out of his mouth was, when was the last time you ate? Which is not a good question. <laughs> And um, I said about an hour, hour and a half ago, and then I heard him say, oh, shit. <laughs> Don't like to hear my doctor say that. <laughs> and um, then he went on to tell me that what I had was necrotizing fasciitis, which the common name is, is uh, flesh-eating bacteria. And that it's very possible that... Um, um, well, actually, he went on to say that, that my kidneys were beginning to fail, and I could go into respiratory arrest, and... Um, and also I could go into septic shock at any point. And that I needed to have immediate surgery, and it's possible that I could have my left leg amputated or I could possibly die. It was just a Tuesday night. <laughs> this was not on my calendar. Fortunately, I'm here to tell you the story. Four surgeries, skin grafts, 
very lucky that I survived this. And it turns out in Santa Cruz County that year, the, I was the fourth person to get flesh-eating bacteria, and the first two died, and the third one had major amputations, and I just have a big whopping scar on my left foot. And actually, I kind of use it as a... I, I don't have tattoos, but that's kind of like my tattoo, because it reminds me of where I dipped my foot into death and pulled it back out, and it's there to remind me all the time of just how precious and how fragile this life is. And actually, at the end of the retreat, I'm happy to show you my left foot if anybody wants to see a big (laughs) whopping scar. (laughs) It's pretty cool. I actually had a, a mole on the top of my thigh, and I didn't have one on my foot, but they took the skin off the top of my thigh and they put it on my foot, and now I have that mole that was on my thigh is now on my foot. It's pretty, it's a pretty interesting. I've actually never told this story in, in a Dharma talk, and I'm, I'm glad that I did. And the spirit behind the story is, is not necessarily to draw attention to me and my drama, though yeah, it was a drama, of course, but just, we just don't know about life. I mean, I, I think one of the things when I look back, like it was just a Tuesday night. It was January 9th, 1996. It was just a Tuesday night. I mean, that was not on my calendar. And how rampant of an infection that was. And it came in like a freight chain. We just don't know. And I want to just bring that up to us. Actually, in my life too, I've, I've actually had to learn to walk five times. It's kind of amazing. Once, of course, when I was a baby, when I was six years old, I got hit by a car and had a compound fracture. I was in the hospital for six weeks. I had a knee surgery. I had another foot surgery. It's very humbling. Just even to get up and be a biped is not easy. So this teaching of samwega, the Pali word, the, when you understand that death can come at any time, it catapults us in the sense of urgency to awaken. We understand the preciousness and the fragileness of this life. So I bring this all up to, in some ways to, hopefully not to scare you, but to, in some sense to, hopefully to inspire you. We just, we just don't know. I was actually having this wandering mind fantasy sitting on the chair over there before this sitting, and somehow I, I just started tripping out on, well, maybe I'll just die here at Spirit Rock this week. And then I thought, like, you know, well, it actually wouldn't be a bad place to die. And I was imagining I'd be outside and I was walking somewhere and you were, you were actually by me. And I was, I was saying, like, you know, just tell my wife and kids I love them so much and I love the Dharma. And, but actually, you know, like, like, you just don't know. I mean, I hope I'm not... Uh, it's a taboo to say these things, and death, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. We don't know. We don't know. But one thing we do know is that one day it will indeed be otherwise. And it invites us to look deeply into our lives. And how incredible that you're all here. You really, you know, there's so many places you could go and to come here, to sit with ourselves, to open up into our lives is such... I I consider this practice to be, quite honestly, some of the most noblest of works and, at times, some of the most difficult of works. 
It's interesting when we look at the teachings of the Buddha and the practical applications to awaken, he teaches what we call the four foundations of mindfulness. And the very first foundation that the Buddha taught is the foundation on the body. On the body. We have to also acknowledge that all of these foundations are interrelated and interdependent, like a person with a shadow. When the body's there, there are also these other foundations that arise, the feeling tones, which we'll be moving into in mind states and the dharmas. But it begins with the body, and this particular retreat has a theme on the body. It's a very beautiful poem by Martha Elliott that speaks about the body, and she says that your history is here, inside your body. Your history is here inside your body, not outside of it, inside your body. Your body is your storehouse of all of its learnings and thoughts and experiences only waiting to reveal its treasures to yourself. So help yourself and let the learning emerge and take shape. Appreciate the wisdom of the body. Each cell alive with emotion, intelligence, ready to help you at any moment. Your history is here inside your body. Your body is your storehouse. Within the <clears throat> foundation of the body, the body practices. <clears throat> pardon me. There's actually six of them. In some ways, we've begun to work with, with the first three. The first three is the mindfulness of breathing practices, the mindfulness of posture, walking, standing, sitting, lying, mindfulness in our activities, such as eating food and toileting, all these different day-to-day activities of living, bring your mindfulness into our lives. The other three practices are not that much taught in the West. They are the 32 parts of the body meditation that we're going to be going into this, this retreat, and the four elements, solidity, liquidity, motion, and temperature, how that all phenomena, when it is broken down, breaks down into solids, liquids, motion, temperature, from the Buddhist point of view. And then there's these contemplations, the last one, on the mindfulness of death. We won't get into that, this retreat, but just to name it, it's a pretty outrageous practice. Nine contemplations, beginning with the first day of death until the body turns into dust, and nine graphic stages of decomposition that I'll spare you. This is my cup of tea. I like this stuff. (laughs) When I was a monk in Burma for a temporary period of time, we would spend time going to the cemeteries in the middle watch of the night from 10 at night till 2 a.m. to meditate on the mindfulness of death. And Burmese cemeteries are not as clean and... uh, as the American ones. So in a Burmese cemetery, it's very easy to find bones lying around and different things like that. But I reflected on why would the Buddha teach a practice on the mindfulness of death, beginning with 
the first day until the body turns into dust. It takes about a year or so. And then I, then I finally, I think, finally realized why he did that. At least he did that for me. Because it probably would take me about a year watching a body that just died and turned into dust to really indeed get that that really does happen. So even though I've been around death, there's, there's still that part of that Hindu proverb that lingers in my awareness, like everyone else is going to die but not me. But this type of practice really helps to dispel that type of belief. So I was first introduced to the 32 parts of the body meditation by my teacher, Venerable Tungpulu. I'm going to say his full name, Tungpulu Toya Kabae Seattle, Ghost Mountain Forest World Peace Teacher. <laughs> that was his name. He was a forest monk, a very simple, incredibly wise, beautiful forest monk in Burma. And he was very much into the 32 parts of the body. And when I first began to study with him and ordained as a monk with him, this was in 1980, I was introduced to the 32 parts of the body. That's now, gosh, 31 years ago. And so I was introduced to that practice. <clears throat> and I worked with it off and on for about 26 years. Not intensively, but off and on. And it was also coinciding with it, probably some of you know, I also teach mindfulness-based stress reduction in different medical centers, and we use a, a practice called the body scan, which is a practice that begins bringing awareness into the left foot and working your way up to the top of your head part by part. And so, the, so I was very into the body practices, and of course, as I shared with you, I was very much interested in the mindfulness of death practices and so forth, and continued with that. And so it took me about 26 years to like, all of a sudden realize, like, my gosh, this 32 parts of the body is a very profound practice. And, um, you know, sometimes I'm a slow learner. And, uh, and I realized that like, it's not taught in the West. And it's got kind of a little bit of a, a negative association that I'll talk about a little bit later. And I just really began to realize its profundity and how that it would be incredibly valuable to begin to um, have this practiced here. Sometimes it's akin, I, I, someday I'm going to have to blow this up into a big poster. But it's a picture from, uh, probably many of you are familiar with Gary Larson in the far side. And so this is a picture of three cows in a pasture and they're eating grass. This is what they do. Cows are in pastures eating grass day in and day out, year after year. And finally, this one cow gets an epiphany and it starts calling out to the other cows, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're eating grass. Did you know that? We're eating grass, we're eating grass. So in the same way, I think after 26 years of being with the body, like, wait a minute, we got a body, hello? There's a body here, we got a body it, it, t it takes, sometimes it takes a long time. We got a body. And I really consider the 32 parts of the body to be kind of like the original body scan that we teach from mindfulness-based stress reduction. It's, um, 
a very powerful practice. Actually, Tungpulu Sero, my teacher, he says of this about the practice, he says, this meditation is one of the most eminent among all of the four foundations of mindfulness, the satipatthanas. The meditation on the body is unlike any other kind of meditation. It is brought to light and only taught during the times when the Buddhas arise, the 32 parts of the body. So you may wonder um, about this practice, and it's actually a very interesting practice because it can be practiced in a few different ways. It can be used for those of us that are into concentration, and we have a concentration retreat upstairs. It can actually be used as a practice to develop very intense concentration. Jhana is the Pali name, absorption. It also can be used sometimes in the monastic community, uh, have used this practice as a way to help curb passions and lust. It's also used, and the way that I teach it and practice with it is as an insight practice, penetrating into the true nature of the body as it interrelates with the elements. Now you may be wondering, though I did give you a handout there about these 32 parts, and so I'll just recite them. It's head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys, heart, liver, diaphragm, spleen, lungs, large intestine, small intestine, stomach, feces, brain, bile, phlegm, pus, blood, sweat, fat, tears, grease, saliva, mucus, and oil of the joints and urine. Quite a collection. And um, I'll speak uh, to this. First, perhaps I'll just speak to um, why this order. And in much of the canonical literature, there's no real solid explanation as to why of this order. Though we can say that there is some progression as it goes from the surface areas to more internal areas. When you think of the first five parts, head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, are the parts that we see with each other. Then we begin to go underneath the skin into the flesh or the muscles or the connective tissue, the sinews, and and so forth. So we're beginning to go deeper in. And there also seems to be, interestingly enough, some arrangement. For example, um, it goes head, hair, body, hair, nails, teeth, skin, flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. Why was this association between bone marrow and kidneys? But then actually a student of mine said, well, you know, Bone marrow is, is, a, is about blood formation and kidneys is a blood purifier. Every day about 400 gallons of blood filter through the kidneys to purify the kidneys. We may also ask, why these parts? I mean, what about the pancreas? My wife has diabetes. What about the pancreas? What about the genitals, the eyes? The nose? I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of other parts. And how I understand it, is that I consider these parts to be like ambassadors. They're ambassadors that are introducing us into the body. And so if we were in, as we do this practice, for example, if we're in the abdominal region and we're dealing with something like diabetes or something else, and there seems to be what's evoked is a natural interest in our, you know, the pancreas, for example, there's no reason that we are to exclude that. Because... From the insight perspective, as we work with this practice, we're really being mindful of what these parts are evoking inside us. So as I 
if you will, bring awareness into the abdominal area, the areas of the digestive organs that may evoke a sense of uh, interest in the pancreas or even more an interest in how am I dealing with my diabetes. So from an insight perspective, we be with these parts to be mindful of what they are evoking inside us physically, mentally, and emotionally. Remember a woman once saying that as she was meditating on head hair, uh, what gradually evoked from being with the head hair was the memory of stroking her dying grandmother's hair before she died, and it just brought up all the sense of grief and sadness and connection and sweetness with her grandmother. So when we work with these parts, we're going to be emphasizing working with it from an inside perspective, being mindful as we move into these parts of what does it evoke inside us physically, mentally, and emotionally. I also think that the Buddha was, um, I think it was very ingenious to begin this practice with the parts that we see. Head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. When you think of the cosmetic industry, it's a billion-dollar industry fussing on head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin. When we work with this practice, we're wanting to penetrate into understanding the true nature of the body. So, for example, when my wife comes home after going to the, getting to the, her haircut, I remind her, honey, head hair, Thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals. Hardened cells protruding for the head for protection of uh, thermal regulation and ultraviolet exposure. <laughs> she gets this big smile on her face. like, whew, Kind of breaks the spell of that enchantment. Because how many of us have sat in front of you, look in front of the mirror and been bummed out with our hair? Has anyone not raised your hand? You know, we spend a lot of time looking in front of that mirror. I know, you know, it's normal. I do too. I don't have much hair anymore to, to do. <laughs> but you can see in this practice, like when we begin to go with head here, we're beginning to look hardened cells protruding from the head. Thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals. That's like what it really is. Yet we do a lot to it. And so we begin to approach the body in this way. And we don't paint it as something negative nor positive. But as a matter of factness, this is just what it is. The head here is thread-like outgrowths from the skin of mammals protruding from the head. Or not. (laughs) And so we penetrate into the body, into these various uh, parts. There's 20 solid parts and 12 liquid. And our practice is to be mindful of what is evoked. So we can see that these parts are just like gateways into many other parts. Perhaps some of the reasons why, and I feel it's important to name this in our Western world, of um, that sometimes this practice has been seen by many householders as kind of a negative practice, because for many years this was a, a very much a monastic practice, and in their practices of celibacy and trying to work with these very powerful forces, they there's a certain connotation that led into this body practice in a very negative way. And sometimes in the text, there's some pretty um, 
strong language that's sometimes used with this, though we will not be using this language here. But I, I feel like, to be fair, I want you to understand some of the background of this practice. Not all of it, but part of it. So in some of the background, this practice is known as cultivating the repulsive or the disgusting or the loathsome aspects of the body. I'm already kind of losing your attention here, I can tell. And, of course, here in the West, like, we have enough body issues, and the last thing we need is like getting into the loathsome aspects. You know, perhaps it did serve its purpose for some of the younger monastics, but even in the Buddhist time, there was people that had a very, uh, monks that had a, a great misunderstanding of this practice and dwelled deeply on this repulsive and negative aspects. And the story goes that a, there's a small group of monks that committed, took their lives because they got so disgusted, and then the Buddha had to go in and kind of, you know, <laughs> straighten it out. So, tea, there's, so there's, there's some references of that in some of the texts if you begin to read, and so I want to you know, be fair and name that. And there is other places in the text where this practice is used as an insight practice as it interrelates with the elements. And I've found this practice to be incredibly beneficial and helpful. So about seven years ago, I began teaching the 32 parts of the body and began um, so grateful for Mary Grace and, and helping it to be taught here in a retreat form. And also in Vipassana Santa Cruz, we've been teaching a longer version of this practice that actually goes for eight months. It's 33 weeks of practice. And um, I can explain a little bit more later on how that goes, but we kind of zigzag. One week we're going head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, and the next week skin, teeth, nails, body here, head here. We're going forward and backwards and forward and backwards. It's zigzagging. All in all, 33 weeks or eight months. And believe it or not, and I really didn't know because this was a grand experiment, would anyone even come? And uh, we're actually entering into... um, Actually, it's about my sixth year of of doing this, and people come, and they come for the whole eight months. It's kind of amazing. And more than once. once. Nancy's gone for three times. (laughs) Yeah. So there's a very interesting way to practice this, and we're going to be working with it tomorrow in this way. And one of the unusual qualities of this practice is that um, it involves some verbal recitation of the parts. So you're going to be doing a little bit of chanting, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin. And so one of the, what we talk about in the, in the practice is actually called in the text a sevenfold skill in learning. But what that means is that in order to do this practice, we want to know it verbally, and that sets the condition to know it mentally. And then for mentally, we want to know the color of the part, the shape, the location, the direction, is it above or below the waist, and what it's bordered by, the delimitation. And in addition to that, so that we can really begin to penetrate more deeply into the part, we want to know the definition of the part and its function. So there's some understanding there. And so we'll begin to dive into these parts starting tomorrow. We'll do a guided meditation, one in the morning, head here, body here, nails, teeth, skin, and then the next in the afternoon, we'll do the next grouping of flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow, kidneys. And so it'll take us three days to go through these six groupings of parts.
friend of mine who had um, taken the eight-month class. She was also like a, a chief financial officer of some corporation, so she had a lot of skills in accounting. and So she actually put out an Excel sheet of the approximate cost of how much she spent on her head, hair, body hair, nails, teeth, and skin from the age of zero up to the age of 67. And uh, <laughs> it was quite phenomenal. wish I had a little uh, PowerPoint here I could show you. <laughs> Glad I don't. But, um, yeah, she's, like she had it broken down between the ages of 0 to 10. She spent 185 bucks on head hair. Then between age 10 and 20, it was $1,000. And <laughs> she, so she's tabulated up to the age of 67 that she spent about $27,000 on head hair. And she spent on body hair, which is, um, you know, like, oh, razors, shaving cream, eyebrow wax, um, whatever. She spent about 1000 bucks on nails for nail polish, nail files, nail utensils, pedicures, manicures, nail oil, about 14000 bucks On teeth, it was like about $25,000. On toothpaste, dental brush, tool, tool brushes, electronic <laughs> toothbrushes, cleanings, fillings, crowns. And on skin, that was like about uh, $25,000. Lotion, moistures, cleansers, makeup, peels, facials, laser work, skin cancer, freezing, skin surgeries. <laughs> we do a lot with head hair, body hair, nails, teeth, skin, and much more. So this body practice is really moving into the body. Sometimes I like to say it's gritty, it's juicy, it's smelly, it's the body. We're entering into the body. We live in this thing. Wendy Yen, a poet in Santa Cruz, she wrote um, this thing called The 110 Functions of the Body, and I love this. This really gets us in the body. And one of the things that I actually I'll say before I read this is that one of the reasons why I don't have a strong push towards wanting to endorse the repulsive aspects is that when you really consider it, this body is the only one that we will ever get in this entire life. We will not get a body transplant. This is the only one we ever get. And it's within this body that we, this is the place that we live inside of to awaken. So why not also, in some sense, how I really want to work with this practice is, is befriending the body, but also seeing it as it really is. Maybe I don't have to get so bummed out on my head here when I know it's just thread-like outgrowth from the skin of mammals. I'm beginning to see it as it really is, breaking that spell of enchantment and beginning to understand it. But this body needs to, you know, we awaken in the body. You don't awaken outside of the body. Just at the beginning, words of the Buddha that within this fathom-long body exists our world. This is the origination, the cessation, the pathway to peace. It's in the body, not out of the body. So I think it's very important within this practice to understand deeply the the sacredness of the body. This is, this is the vehicle that we live inside of, and it needs to be cared for to awaken This is the 110 Functions of the Body by Wendy Yen. It's an exhaustive list, but may you appreciate it. 
Inhaling, exhaling, smelling, coughing, sniffing, sneezing, hungering, thirsting, licking, sucking, tasting, biting, chewing, salivating, spitting, lubricating, swallowing, belching, hiccuping, vomiting, transporting, digesting, selecting, absorbing, storing, burning, building, copying, creating, destroying, cramping, flatulating, defecating, pumping, distributing, filtering, excreting, holding, urinating, listening, seeing, blinking, dilating, crying, speaking, humming, singing, screaming, whispering, smiling, frowning, laughing, upholding, anchoring, proprioceptive, sitting, standing, balancing, walking, running, jumping, dancing, hugging, Tensing, relaxing, contracting, stretching, trembling, enclosing, excluding, warming, shivering, cooling, sweating, itching, scratching, shedding, moving, touching, feeling, engorging, climaxing, sleeping, snoring, dreaming, waking, menstruating, conceiving, bearing, birthing, suckling, growing, fatiguing, breaking, aching, ailing, paining, fevering, replenishing, cleansing, hosting, engulfing, killing, collecting, repairing, clotting, blocking, swelling, dying, decaying. Whew. The body. And we're moving into the body. Not living a short distance away from it, within this fathom-long body exists our life, our world. And we're beginning to dive into this body to know it. Mary Oliver says, she has a poem called The Body, it says, Bless the fingers, for they're as darting as fire. Bless the little hairs of the body, for they're softer than grass. Bless the hips, for they're cunning beyond all machinery. Bless the mouth, for it is the describer. Bless the tongue, for it is the maker of words. Bless the eyes, for they are the gifts of the angels, for they tell the truth. Bless the shoulders, for they are the strength and shelter. Bless the thumb, for when working it has a godly grip. Bless the feet, for their knuckles and their modesty. Bless the spine, for it is the whole story. So when we speak about the 32 parts of the body in the, in the canonical literature, it speaks about benefits for this practice. And probably one of the most significant and important benefits is it helps to break down this erroneous view of I, me, and my, the self. We come to see, is I to be found in the head, hair, the body, hair, nails, teeth, and skin? No doubt, you know, when we see a car, we call it a Ford, but actually the Ford is made up of a carburetor and tires and this and that. And, you know, where, where, where's the Ford to be found? The Ford is just a concept. So we begin to work with this practice to help this erroneous view of self to understand this. Of course, this practice also talks about amassing concentration, jhana, absorption. Speaks about that when you do this practice, you can conquer your boredom and fear and dread and delight. You can bear heat and cold. Of course, attaining nibbana, deep freedom and peace. And also speaks about in this number of references of using this practice for healing, working with illness. 
I have a, an old friend who's now passed away. Her name was Barbara, and when she came to the monastery when I was living there, she had uh, advanced lung cancer and had under a year to live, a prognosis. And the monks taught her the 32 parts of the body meditation, and she particularly worked with her lungs. And um, she really got some amazing benefit with the 32 parts of the body and really felt like it really significantly helped her illness. And so for the next six years, Barbara would write a postcard and mail it to her oncologist. And just two words, still here. (laughs) Love, Barbara. Four words. She did have a reoccurrence after six years, but it was well, I mean, she had a one year under prognosis. And, um, but she got another you know, almost six years, and some of that was very good quality living. And, uh, you know, sadly, uh, it did reoccur and she did die. But even in her dying process, we were very close friends. And she actually wrote to me a very beautiful poem about just even uh, facing her death. I'd like to share it with you. It's called Of Life and Death. She says, It's not the will to live which sustains my life, but the release from fear. I've not outwitted death, but broken free from the stranglehold of fear. At Christmas we celebrate the wonder of birth of Easter, the miracle of rebirth. What then of death? What then of death? Without fear, Death unfolds like a warm cloak of soft black wool. Death is the abyss from which all life emerges, drawn by the light. Barbara Roberts. Hmm. Thank you, dear Barbara. So when we teach the 32 parts, we teach it from a very neutral and matter-of-fact perspective, and we just bear witness within what it evokes physically in the body, mentally, and emotionally. So I'll just end as we're getting close to being done here with a couple of readings. And this is actually, um, again, speaking about the importance of the body and the investigation. And this is written by an amazing, uh, wonderful forest, Thai forest master. His name was Achon Moon. Achan Mun was the teacher of Achan Cha. Achan Cha was the teacher of Jack Confield and many others, Achan Sumedho and Amaro, many others. So Achan Mun, he says, In your investigation of the world, never allow the mind to desert the body. Never allow the mind to desert the body. So again, pointing to the body, be in the body. Examine its nature, he says, of the body. See the elements, the difficulties, the selflessness of the body while sitting, standing, walking, or lying down. And when its true nature is seen fully and lucidly by the heart, the wonders of the world become clear. And in this way, the purity of the mind can shine forth timeless and delivered. Timeless and delivered. So I thought I would just um, end on a more humorous note. 
This has a little bit of some body stuff in it. It's from The Places You'll Go by Dr. Seuss. He says, sometimes, I'm afraid that sometimes you'll play lonely games too, games you can't win because you'll play against you. All alone, whether you like it or not, alone you'll be something quite a lot. And when you're alone, there's a good chance that you're going to meet some things that might scare you right out of your pants. There are some down on the road between hither and yon that can scare you so much you won't want to go on, but on you will go. Though the weather be foul, on you'll go through the hack and cracks howl. And onward up many a frightening creek, though your arms may get sore and your sneakers may leak. And on and on you'll hike, and I know you'll hike far and face up to your problems, whatever they are. And you'll get mixed up, of course, as you already know. You'll get mixed up with many strange birds as you go. So be sure to where you step, and step with care and great tact, and remember that life's a great balancing act. And just never forget to be dexterous and deft, and never mix up your right foot with your left. So let's just sit for a minute. So within this fathom-long body exists our world. Its beginning, its end, its pathway to great freedom freedom within this fathom-long body. So just feeling into your body. The only body we ever get in this life Maybe hold it with great kindness and care. Maybe all beings dwell with peace. So thank you very much and some walking practice and we'll have our last sit in about 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you.